Hello, and welcome to the Spectator PM podcast. I'm Luther Abel, joined by Aubrey. Aubrey, how are we doing today? Doing pretty well. Just wrapping up for the week, which is really good. Spending hours staring at a screen, editing animations, but you know. So if there's an animation that you could make, like that, is there an an, a piece of animation that you think is just tops? There's uh, these old, like, uh, sort of Betty Boop cartoons of um, old classical music integrated with it, where, I mean, it's probably 24 frames per second, but the animation from the 20s and 30s is so smooth and, I don't know, friendly. Uh, it really puts to shame the more CGI animation that Pixar has really picked up and run with in recent years. Uh, do you have a, a favorite piece of cartoon work? Oh, um, we grew up on Looney Tunes and I've always loved Looney Tunes. They're great, but these are not as exciting as far as animations. They're just like visualizations and um, yeah, visualizations for a story and trying to make bring a story that's rather boring into real life, which is always fun. So. So that way it's not just me talking at a screen. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. It really does help to have something new every once in a while on the screen. Um, it does, yeah. Hmm. Uh, so could you tell me the advantages or what you love about evening mass? We were discussing what we'd done this past week, and you mentioned that uh, you had attended evening mass recently and that you just really found it um, meditative and um restorative yeah i have an advent resolution to try to attend daily mass three times a week which is better than none which is what i was doing <laughs> we're, we're focusing on small games here um and i wouldn't normally go to the evening mass um there's a local institute of christ the king parish nearby um but i usually have something going on during that time period and I my evening cleared up and I was like oh I should just go to mass so I did and it was lovely it was very quiet um the institute has this wonderful thing where they like add on things after mass and make it a little bit more special so there was like adoration following and then you just sit in the dark with Christ and it's awesome <laughs> So it's definitely a great break from like staring at my screen and thinking doom and gloom about all the horrible things going on in the world. And then it's like a recenter on this, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is awesome. So That is. Well, my week uh, was composed of things not nearly as <laughs> heartwarming and uplifting, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the good news is that we discovered there is mold in my basement, which sounds like terrible news, but uh, been having some ill health effects and I just had no idea what the heck was happening. I'm a very healthy guy, never taken a sick day really ever except recently. And um, yeah, have an inspector come out and you're like, yeah, you got a whole heap of mold down here. Oh, should probably get that taken care of. So, so how do you get rid mold in their house <laughs> uh, i believe it's uh aspergillum aspergillum i don't know the biologists love their just sounds um 
<laughs> you apparently just wipe it down with a two-part solution. You bring in a whole uh, bunch of uh, ventilation and then you just get after it. And then because it's on exposed beams, they have some sort of like superfi superficial burning device um, that goes into the wood just a little bit and kills the root of um, the mold spore. Um, now I could be botching the science of it, but something to that effect where you make it um, uninhabitable for this uh, mold that likes untreated lumber, especially. Uh, so guys who know better than me will be taking care of it, uh, discovered by a guy who has many more years of science experience <laughs> than I do. I got out of that in college because I had so much um, mechanical background and physics background from the Navy with uh, nuke school and then um, my Detroit diesel experience. So I just kind of jumped over that and didn't make any eye contact with the science building my whole time there. It'll draw you Very in. Nice. It's like the Overlook Hotel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I think anyway. But um, could you tell us a little bit about, uh, I understand a question of the abortion pill is going before the U.S. Supreme Court soon. What can people expect from that? Um, have the justices shown any preference one way or the other? Yeah, so the U.S. Supreme Court agreed this week to hear a bunch of cases, and among them, probably one of the most important cases that will be hearing this term is a case on whether or not the abortion pill, Mifepristone, um, has been, whether or not the FDA rushed the um, regulation of it and removed safeguards um, without, you know, appropriate appropriately uh, looking at the effects. So essentially, um, a group of doctors, the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, brought this case up in the Fifth Circuit. Um, it was in first with a district court and then with a circuit court um, where they essentially claimed that the FDA had rushed the regulation, that they had been pressured by political figures like um, the Clintons, and that essentially they hadn't really paid attention to like the harmful effects that um, this drug was having on women beyond just like the abortion, but like there were some really serious side effects, bleeding, um, you can expect extreme nausea, um, high fevers, you can get bacterial infections afterward. Um, so these doctors were seeing a ton of women come into the ER because, so when the drug was first regulated back in 2000, so September of 2000, they gave it an approval. It was used for 16 years and women had to, it had to be used within the first seven weeks. It, you had to visit a doctor and a medical doctor had to prescribe it. So mm. it was pretty limited how you could use it. Um, in 2016, they expanded it so that you could use it within the first 10 weeks and you only had to have one doctor visit. In 2021, they got rid of that doctor visit entirely. So essentially women could just receive this drug in the mail from any medical professional. It didn't, they didn't have to have, you know, PhD or anything. And then they could just administer the whole course in their own home. That meant that women were essentially miscarrying in their home and they would end up in the ER. Huge problems. So the doctors are suing the FDA. 
The way the left is spinning this, though, is that it's about whether or not women are going to have access to the abortion pill, which is not exactly the case, because <laughs> um, it's really so about whether it's or not, not the way absolute access one way or the other. It's more, again, putting it behind some informed barriers or uh, through yeah. medical observation and information uh, as it was before. Right. Yeah. So when the Supreme Court hears it, they're not going to be hearing whether or not it should have approval at all, because the Fifth Circuit already said that the approval in 2000 was fine. Hmm. They're going to be hearing a case on whether or not women should be able to just receive this drug in the mail and without any doctor supervision in you know their own home, take the drug and, you know, do that whole process from their own home and whether or not that's safe and and whether or not the FDA was actually pressured to make that approval so that they're expanding access to the abortion pill. Like, hmm. what is the role of the political and moral, pre you know, pressures? Okay. So procedural questions. Uh, oh, yeah. If there was a pressure campaign behind the scenes, that'd be, wow. Oh, a lot at stake here. Um, yeah, yeah. So we should have a resolution to this in the next, um, what, six months? By June, usually. By June? Yes, okay. six months. Well. Thank you. Well, and speaking of um, childbirth, uh, there's a story recently about surrogacy and especially uh, gay men employing surrogacy to make these sorts of um, bespoke babies, I guess one could say, um, like a designer handbag except babies, uh, which has all sorts of ethical Perfect. questions uh, attached to it. Um, could you just give us your first reaction you know, when you heard of this? I mean, utter disgust. I, the whole question of surrogacy is like, I mean, essentially it puts a monetary value on life, which is insane. Um, and like the, the fact that you have like frozen embryos, you know, or discarded embryos all over, all over the place as a part of the process is really horrific and yeah it, the, the fact that it's becoming more and more popular especially among celebrities that it seems like there's an effort to normalize it is really scary yeah and for those who aren't familiar with this story in particular uh i'll just read you the first paragraph of the piece here so youtubers shane dawson and ryland adams announced the birth of their sons jet and max on sunday uh Dawson is the biological father of one of the boys. Uh, Adams is the father of the other, the mother of the children, whom they call only the egg donor, uh, is unknown. Uh, she is just a incubation chamber uh, for these, these babies, according to these men. Um, so this woman carried and gave birth to the children for payment. Um, and so there was <laughs> just the procedure of it. I'll have you go read the piece because I don't think I can actually say some of these words out loud. Um, 
for the podcast without getting some sort of ding on our record. Uh, But to suffice to say, this is an unnatural way of producing a child. And not only that, that it demeans a woman's role in producing children to just flesh, necessary flesh to produce desired children. Uh, I mean, it's the height of vanity uh, on one level, but also there are an additional 10 embryos out there uh, that were then got rid of because these men came in and said, no, I want a baby with these attributes. I want him to look this way, to talk this way, to develop such a way and be so tall. Like, it's one thing to go to a soda fountain and mix your drink together. It's another thing to go to a clinic and do that with with something that has a spark of the divine in it. uh, and I, I, it's difficult to wrap one's head around it because it's just so abominable. Um, so unnatural. It's like children are supposed to be the product of two individuals who love each other. And instead you end up with this like cold, I don't know, like coldly produced life, which is just terrific. Right. And I don't know what, so these kids are going to grow up one day and realize that they had 10 other siblings uh, who were effectively destroyed while they were selected. <laughs> what what does that do to a child to realize that? Um, survivor guilt, uh, PTSD, and the sorts of parents who would choose this way to produce offspring one has to question their ability to parent in the first place uh, when they when they choose children um, in such a bloodless um, fashion. I just I doubt we're going to have a happy ending to this story, um, and I feel so badly for these boys and the woman who who bore them. Um, uh, anything else there, Aubrey? I mean, it's, it's hard to dwell I mean, yeah. on. It really is. Yeah. Uh, but tea. Uh, we had some tea spilled earlier today. I won't say about what. But um, the Boston Tea Party uh, popping off tomorrow. Do you celebrate, Aubrey? What do you, th- what do you think about the, uh, the uh, Boston Tea Party? I mean, I don't really celebrate. I feel like I should. Like a nice cup of tea is always great. You can celebrate dumping it into the harbor. Um, I always thought that event for me kind of encapsulates a lot of like the American approach to regulation into the government um, in so many ways. Like the kind of men who would dump tea into the Boston Tea Harbor, you know, Boston Harbor. I cannot talk today. <laughs> Too many hours already spent looking at a computer. Um, but like the, those kinds of men are, you know, the kinds of men who could establish a government that, I mean, originally had very little um, regulation for, you know, regular everyday people. And, and they're the kind of men who 
dedicated themselves to establishing a country, even though I think when they, I mean, when they went into, you know, dumped tea in the harbor or went to actually start the revolt, they, they had no intention of ending up with an entirely different country. And then they did. So. Right. And um, I think we should point out that on the modern left, there's this effort to conflate the Boston Tea Party and um, the violence against property that, that necessitated with uh, groups like Black Lives Matter, um, a lot of these leftist outfits that kind of in this broad Antifa movement. Um, but with so many things in life, it's a matter of degrees, intent, and scope. And the Boston Tea Party was a reaction to martial law, uh, a state-imposed monopoly that was going to destroy American industry, the tea trade. Um, and it was conducted without the loss of life um, and was focused on really government-owned property that was looking to destroy the livelihood of Americans who were not represented um, in parliament. And so when you do things in a fashion that is one, limited in scope, speaks directly to the one with whom you have legitimate grievance and that it's between citizens and the state, uh, citizens who cannot speak any other way to the state, uh, then you have, in my, in my view, a greater liberty to do something like the Boston Tea Party. Uh, and even then, I am, I am against mob action. I just don't like big groups of people. Uh, even during the Packer game, there. there's just something very conservative in me that says, I don't trust the crowd. Um, and even the founding fathers at the time were writing saying, hey, Bostonians, chill. This isn't the way to do it. Uh, but it's probably the best example of if you are going to destroy property of doing it in a legitimate fashion. Uh, so that should be like the bleeding edge of, <laughs> of is it okay, is it not okay? And as we've seen with groups like Black Lives Matter and Antifa and other leftist groups, they go far beyond it. Uh, there is bloodshed uh, frequently with these groups. And uh, they have ways to address grievances through uh through voting, through group action that doesn't require destroying um, entire communities, entire downtowns, um, statuary and all that. So it, it just doesn't work. Like it's one of those where it's a great Twitter comeback for the left, like, well, well the Boston Tea Party did that. But the second you spend more than five seconds actually Comparing the two, you're like, oh no, you guys are full of it, but nice try. Um, the frustrating thing as one who likes history and likes nuance is the left's argument often carries a day on Twitter because no one thinks for more than five seconds or bothers to do research. And unfortunately, um, I think our education system has failed 
many American kids on actually teaching these events as and distinguishing between things, making moral observations. Um, but sometimes I get frustrated with the right on that count too, because I'm like, do you remember being a kid? Like, it didn't matter what you're being taught in school. You weren't paying attention anyway. You were staring at the girl in front of you because you thought she was the greatest thing you've ever seen in the whole world, even though she was buck toothed and kind of weird. Um, looking back <laughs> on it, it's just, uh, you, you don't have all that much opportunity to get through to kids. And I think as much or more is on parents to be inculcating um, these sorts of ethical questions in their children. Uh, it cannot be just in school for seven-ish hours a day um, that they're being asked to consider deeper questions. Um, it ju you just can't do it in that small a span of time. Uh, that about do it on the tea party? Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> All right. Um, so the White House just released a, its Christmas uh, video and the right was in an uproar because ah, it disrespects Christmas and it's the worst thing ever. If you haven't seen it, there's this sort of like tap dance routine uh, but could you take us through what she didn't like, what she did like, what just struck you as weird about the whole thing, Aubrey? Um, so when I saw it, I saw it compared to the, there was like a video from the Trump White House, which so apparently like this is a thing they do it every year where they release a video walking through like the Christmas decoration is supposed to be kind of like Christmas decorations are cool and man, are they cool. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> typically, um, they really go all out. It, there was definitely, I mean, there's a huge contrast because the Trumps were just so classy comparatively, but I don't know. It was weird to me. It was also the first time I'd ever seen one of those videos. So like I had no context for it other than, oh, apparently this is something they do every year. I mean, it wasn't a hundred percent bad. It was just weird. <laughs> um, it was not the move I would have gone with if I were the one designing that walkthrough. But then again, nobody asked me. So here we are. <laughs> if only. Aubrey, know, 2024. Yeah. Let's do it. Wait, how to just take back the white house for christmas <laughs> <laughs> just don't bother to be president the other like 11 oh. months we're getting christmas right dang it and then we're vacating washington entirely that would actually be an improvement be I, i'm a big fan of that idea that's a... yeah. we'll, we'll consider I mean, that okay if i were in a video it wouldn't happen until for another at least a week <laughs> <laughs> that's true too I don't think the president <laughs> has to edit as many things as you do, though. At That's least not true. Biden. I don't think he's looking at much of anything. Um, but I won't get all grouchy this close to Christmas. Uh, I'll just say that I like tap dance. Um, and this isn't just because I was in the Navy and I'm a bit of a frou-frou. Uh, it's that... It's, it, was, it was fun. Unfortunately, the first 30 second, the seconds were just bizarre uh the entire really hallway was decorated like do you remember in elementary school where the 
teachers would uh, staple these kind of like crinkle cut uh, strips of paper on the border of like all of the um, whiteboards. Uh, you were homeschooled. Maybe your mom did this. Oh, maybe. Yeah, I was going to say it. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there, there are these sorts of borders that always have like crayons or decoration in them. And yeah, yeah. it was these sorts of things that were in the hallway of the White House. And it just looked really tacky. And there was this dancer in like this, uh, some sort of dress, but it was like a see-through hula hoopy kind of thing going on and she was just kind of running down the hallway with like a follow me thing going and there was this one girl with her mouth agape just what's that like it's a youtube thumbnail for something and so it started really dumb um and as a guy who's started a lot of my work really dumb i hate to see other people start things really dumb because the rest was fun it was fine it was great it was festive uh but the first 30 seconds were some sort of performance art that um could have been cut they needed an editor aubrey that's really what it comes down to <laughs> we all need yeah. editors and this isn't us just promoting ourselves but um we do charge hourly if anyone's looking um so i think that's that's about all we can say on that and now you recommend scott mckay's uh piece about uh something being joe biden's fault what's that all yeah so the piece is called it's joe biden's fault he can't get the the ukraine funding i think i have it written down yes that is what it says um and <laughs> My my handwriting is not good. I wrote it very quickly. So um I I was a kind of an interesting take, one that I haven't really seen elsewhere. Um where it's somebody on the right who's supportive of perhaps funding Ukraine, but is also like pointing out the fact that Joe Biden's like attempt to try to get Congress to fund Ukraine has not worked. Um between him not supporting, you know, sending more money down to the border, which is what Johnson is trying to, Speaker Johnson is trying to like tie to the Ukraine funding and by like absolutely horrible um, press conferences he's been holding where you're like, are you are you sure you're all there? <laughs> it doesn't seem like it. Because um, there was another one of those this past week. <laughs> um, like it's really more his, like his own fault that we aren't getting the funding. And I mean, Zelensky's trying his best. He visited Congress this week. I saw a bunch of clips about it. I didn't pay that much attention. <laughs> there just seems to be a very different reception of him, like compared to when he first came, like, what was it? Like 2021 when he first arrived in Congress and it was like the huge, like standing ovation or whatever. That was pretty shocking, but we tire quickly of war um, and having yeah. to spend a lot of money on others' wars. Uh, and it's understandable. Like when you see, uh, especially for those who are exposed to some real degradation in uh, American uh, culture, uh, political life, as well as just, I mean, physical objects, uh, roadways. Um, opioid crisis, 
like <laughs> when you see things that could use money and then you hear that this money is just flying out of a cannon across the ocean it's really hard to be like well you know it, it's good to fund our allies because that supports something that we're already trying to do and undercutting you know the uh the russian empire and that like, ah, okay <laughs> but i have <laughs> friends who are dying of overdose and it seems like we could use that funding on the border to keep those drugs from coming in um yeah fair uh there, there has to be some reciprocity uh, where we're taking care of what we need to at home. Um, and I'm a pretty hawkish guy. I, you can only ask so much of the American people's generosity. And I think Washington has gotten way too comfortable um, exploiting that um, for foreign requests when Money is not making it to people who could use it um, here in the US. And I don't know how you resolve that uh, because yeah. it seems I like mean, there's always. There... Sorry. Uh, like there is a good argument to be made for, or I mean, potentially for sending money to Ukraine. The question is whether or not that's the best use of that, that those particular like $60 billion or whatever they're asking for right now. And I don't know, it seems to me like the answer is probably no, but it's not like I know all of the cards or how everything's going to play out. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where I'm glad we're not in charge, but I also feel like we're thinking about this uh, more clear headed than a lot of people making the decisions. So <laughs> uh, that's, that's a frustration and I'm sure... <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Um, many Americans uh, feel the same way about our foreign aid at the moment. Um, yeah, so go check out Scott McKay. Uh, he's always <laughs> a rip-roaring read. Uh, my recommendation to you is Ben Stein's Life at 79. And all of you probably know Ben Stein. <laughs> he's just a really funny, engaging writer. Um, and so he's kind of looking around him at the age of 79 and taking stock of what's working, what's not, why are the stairs more difficult today than they seem to be yesterday. And uh, in his just classic style uh, that we all love him for, it's uh, kind of a listicle. Uh, he puts BuzzFeed to shame, though, I'll say that. So go and check you don't it have out. To click so <laughs> also that and we don't have nearly as many ads so i mean True. just saying uh, and as a crotchety old guy i felt myself nodding along sagely with with each of the points he makes uh the old joints aren't doing what they used to that's fine um <laughs> now as far as media you are on to anne of windy poplars is that correct which number uh is this in the series I think it's number four. I have read through all eight of this, the Anne of Green Gables series, probably four or five times, which is funny because it, it doesn't feel like it'd be something I'd love. I love the last book, Rill of Ingleside, is like my favorite. But I've been working through, and I actually have it with me, Anne of Windy Poplars, because it's kind of her life as a post-college grad, young teacher engaged to 
um, you know, the love of her life for, but like unable to marry him for three years. And it's just a really like, Ella Montgomery is a writer's writer. She will occasionally just stop in the middle of whatever she's doing and be like, isn't that a fantastic phrase? And you're like, yeah, I guess it is. Um, she's really funny to read, but also the story is like, so heartwarming. Nobody in it is perfect. Like they all have their little faults, but like they're all trying their best and there's a lot of grace for them. And mm -hmm. like, there's a recognition that like people don't just do bad things because, or like semi bad things. Cause nobody in the book is like truly evil. There's not like, there's not an antagonist. Um, like, no, like people always have a reason for being the way they are. And it's just a really great story of like small community, small family. And this one is different because it's written in the form of a bunch of letters that she's writing to Gilbert and they're really sweet. So yeah, it's been a good read. Three years. So I, I'm unfamiliar with the story. I betray myself here. Uh, why three years? It seems excessive. Um, he was, uh, he is going through medical school at the time. So he's doing um, his medical school and she is teaching, which is what she got her degree in, um, and saving up for them getting married. So. Sure. And once they're married, she can no longer teach. Is that still the rule? Um, I, she probably could. She doesn't in this story. She stays at home and takes care of their kids and they ha they have kids pretty quickly. Um, so I think like within the first few chapters of house of dreams, she finds out she's pregnant. But... And they managed to have children without, um, going in and making test tubes of them. Yeah, actually. Shockingly. Wow. Crazy. <laughs> That's good for them. Mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that, that didn't exist at the time, but <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what that would have looked like at the time. A lot healthier view of life. I mean, the books are just so vibrant and full of life. So. Yeah, so what what uh, period was this series written in? Uh, um. So Rilla of Ingleside, I think, ends, it either ends with World One or World Two. It's one of the World Wars. Which one broke out in December? Because the... Yeah, I don't remember. I think it's World War One. Yeah, World War yeah, One yeah. makes the most sense because we're yeah, because there's very early twentieth century, right? And there's nothing in like Anne's younger story where she's talking about World Wars, but later there is, so that would make more sense. Yeah. All right, so we got it figured out. Good. I was, <laughs> I was the. Um... The headmaster, I think it was, in Anne of Green Gables. It was a good oh, monologue. Boy, yeah. Yeah. I wore long robes. I actually robes. don't like the first You don't? But... Hot no, take. I don't like the first book. Okay. I like what... every other What don't you like about the first one? Anne drives me nuts in the first book. Like, she's... She makes like really foolish decisions. I've I've come to enjoy it more as I got have as I've gotten older, but especially as like a kid, it was my least favorite. 
Did you feel like you were guilty by association? Like she was your age and she was messing up and you're like, we're all going to get punished here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Yep. But she just feels so over the top, that first book. By the time she's a bit older, like she's grown into it and it fits her better. Mm. But maybe it's because I was a little bit like her as a kid. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So she had a little too much Pippi Longstocking going on. Oh yeah, for sure. (laughs) Those books are so good too. I'm like, when people, when these schools talk about getting rid of older books, like you don't understand how good they are, how eternal they are. Like it's not just, well, anything before 1960, we have to clear out to make room for new authors. Like, no, most new authors suck, I'm sorry. There's nothing new they're saying. (laughs) There's nothing that's going to be worth reading in 10 years, really. But there is this canon of children's literature that needs to remain. And I, I will die on this hill. I will die on three of these hills because it's so important and so monstrous that it's probably its own mountain range. Um, and it simply has to be done. Cause I was just thinking of, um, Stuart Little again, the other day and Stuart Little mm-hmm. on his, uh, his tiny sailboat in the, uh, in the pond there, like, man, it's so dadgum whimsical and Mr. Poplar's penguins. Uh-huh. Like, golly. I loved that. That's so yeah. funny. You just, you, I, I, I don't even have words to say how much I feel about that, but I'm sure it'll be an essay <laughs> at some point and it'll be an essay again in two years. Um, as for me, I would recommend, uh, I was feeling sick. So like, hey, what the heck? I'll just watch movies that I should have watched 20 years ago. So I watched uh, Master and Commander the other day, uh, which is a story of a British vessel um, hunting a French vessel during uh, the Napoleonic Wars, I believe. Uh, So they're down on the South American coast and it's, oh, it's piratey. It's a really good examination of sailing in the period uh, where these guys are just grim, gruesome dudes. Like they're, they're actually impressed. They're not awed by anything <laughs> they're pretty much prisoners on a ship who have to work as sailors and so having been an enlisted guy i recognize a lot of their woes a lot of that life i'm grateful of how much nicer the u.s navy is than the royal navy of the period was uh, but also the guile and craft of seafaring it's it is masterfully done. Uh, and there was a lot of research that went into it. And I'm sure they got some small details wrong, but even the final uh, pitch battle where they're you know throwing grappling hooks over the side and meeting together, there's just so much chaos and broken material. Like it is in Pirates of the Caribbean where everything's really clean and the ships depart and there's, there's nothing slumped over or masts in the water. No, it is ugly and it is extremely damaging. And it's kind of a return to a state of nature where there's a reason that animals in nature don't fight all that often. And that's because they know that 
to be even slightly injured is to increase the chances that they'll die. Um, and the same with these naval battles. Uh, they were so ruinous to the uh, structure and integrity of your ship because even in the best times, you can be sunk by nature, uh, let alone your enemies. So amazing movie. And then because I'd watched a Navy film, I was like, well, I got to go watch Top Gun Maverick because I haven't watched it. And I'm not an American until I've watched the new Top Gun movie. I know. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. I hadn't watched a movie in a year, I think. It had been that long. Um, So I went and checked it out. And like, it's just so heartwarming to have a movie that's so pro-America. And it's just like it's a sexy movie the cinematography is insane like having him launch from the aircraft carrier and have that view of the carrier disappearing almost immediately in the rear view and of course everyone's nice to look at and um i just wish they'd actually named the enemy instead of this you know faceless quasi russian enemy I think it was originally supposed to be China. I could be wrong about that, but yeah, I don't know. I actually didn't mind that they didn't name it. I feel like so many of our like foreign enemies are a they, especially in the media, and so it kind of felt justifiable. And you could it makes it a little more timeless, right? It's not like oh, Americans would have associated this with Russia or with Iran. Yeah, they they, they gave me enough meat there that I was like, okay, I know who we're talking about, even if we don't name anyone. Um, right, right. It's, it's quite obvious. I was I was saying my I was t- I told Luther earlier, but my three year old brother absolutely loves Top Gun Maverick, which we, we tried as a family to watch the original Top Gun um, through VidAngel, which I would highly recommend, except that Top Gun through VidAngel makes very little sense. <laughs> Um, <laughs> the original is not appropriate for small children. Uh, and you can usually tell what they're saying, even when it bleeps it out because <laughs> facial expressions are, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the 14 year old is like, I know what they're saying. And my dad's like, well, yes, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell the little kids they don't. Um, but yeah, no, the three year old brother loved the second one. So the danger zone is like his theme song now he'll run around the house singing that and then you gotta the get him some thing. uh you have to get him some aviators for christmas if he doesn't oh, already yeah, have them a... he doesn't yeah. oddly enough he's yeah. got to be the goose the maverick the somebody yeah well goose has a sad end but up until that That's point true. super cool uh so to listeners who haven't watched it recently or ever i mean both of those movies are well well worth your time there's not any wokey crap it's just really top top notch cinema that i hope the success of the new top gun movie will incentivize others to pursue that route because uh, man it's magnificent uh, any final thoughts for the good of the group aubrey I don't believe so. That's everything I had. All right. Well, 
I guess that's about it for us here at the uh, Spectator PM podcast. We thank you for listening. Please go check out our work. Have a good one. Thank you.